0: Hello, and welcome to Decarbonize, the clean energy podcast from Fresh Energy. Fresh Energy is a Minnesota nonprofit working to speed our state's transition to a clean energy economy. My name is Joe Olson. I do communications here at Fresh Energy, and I'm here today to share with you a recording of our Untangling the First Energy Scandal webinar that Fresh Energy co hosted with the Energy News Network. At this event, the Energy News Network's Ken Paulman leads a panel of journalists and advocates from Ohio through a discussion to untangle one of the biggest corruption cases in Ohio history. And with that, I will begin the recording.
1: Let's go ahead and get started. Um, So welcome, my name is Ken Paulman. I'm the director of the Energy News Network. Uh, We are based here in St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, our, our panelists are, are online here and ready to go. We'll introduce you to them here in just a moment. Uh, Bray, if you want to hit the next slide, please. Thank you. Um, so uh, I want to acknowledge uh, the Energy Policy Institute, IN Ohio, and the Ohio Environmental Council for joining us today and being a part of this event. Uh, Again, I'm uh, the director of the Energy News Network. We are a uh, editorial independent news service published by Fresh Energy. Uh, Fresh Energy's mission is to shape and drive bold policy solutions to achieve equitable carbon neutral economies. Together, we are working toward a vision of a just, prosperous, and resilient future powered by a shared commitment to a carbon neutral economy. Uh, You can find uh, more information about the Energy News Network at energynews.us. And uh, let's get to the next slide. So uh, we will have our panelists introduce themselves here very shortly. I want to just point out a couple of housekeeping items here. Uh, We do have uh, an online Q&A function uh, for you to submit questions to the panelists. I will be monitoring that and I won't necessarily get to every question immediately. I can't guarantee we'll get to all the questions, Um, but we'll do our best to kind of weave those into the conversation as as we go. So feel free to use that function. If you've got uh, if more of a comment than a question, I would ask that you not use the question and answer feature for that. Uh, don't be that guy. Um, but uh, we welcome questions or uh, uh, requests for clarification uh, throughout the conversation because there's a lot to cover here. So uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to our panelists to introduce themselves and go ahead and just kind of tell us your, your name your affiliation and kind of, uh, you know, just a little bit about your work and how it relates to this whole story. story. And we will start uh,
2: with Dave uh, Anderson. Hi there, my name's David Anderson. I am the policy and communications manager for the Energy and Policy Institute. Um, And I've been doing work in Ohio, um, basically researching and at one point earlier in my career, advocating against um, efforts to roll back the state's renewable energy and energy efficiency standards for electric utilities. Um, And really over the years we've covered quite a bit of information about First Energy's role in those attacks and also some coal and nuclear bailout proposals that have been floated at the federal and state level in Ohio. Um, And of course we've now seen that that kind of blew up into a much bigger story about uh, bribery and corruption. So happy to um, share what I've learned over the years and listen to what others have to say as well with great interest.
1: Great, Kathy?
3: Um, My name's Kathy Kowalski. I'm a journalist and attorney based in Ohio. I've been reporting for Energy News Network since about 2013 and uh, had been covering a number of developments with First Energy, AEP, and the other utilities over the years. For the last two years, I've been working with Energy News Network and ION Ohio on a joint project to uncover different aspects of the, uh, what's behind House Bill 6 and what led up to it and where we may be going from there.
4: Okay, Randy hey, Hi, everybody. My name is Randy Lepla. I'm with the Ohio Environmental Council. I'm our Vice President of Energy Policy and Lead Energy Council. Um, the mission of the OEC is to um, secure healthy land, air, and water for all Hokala, Ohio homes. So we work on public lands, clean energy, uh, water issues, and we also work on democracy issues because you can't have a healthy environment without a healthy democracy, as uh, we will talk about more today, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, over the last couple of years, have certainly started uh, a side career as an anti-corruption attorney, it appears, uh, with, with some of the ongoings that we'll talk about today.
1: Thank you. And last but certainly not least, uh, Lucia.
5: Hi, my name is Lucia Valencius. I'm the executive director of the Ohio Center for Journalism, uh, for, or for SEO purposes, ION Ohio. Um, so our mission is to promote the public good by pursuing in-depth, underreported, and high-impact journalism which exposes injustice and explores its consequences. Our reporting investigates the truth, holds those in power accountable and seeks solutions. So obviously this is a topic that we've been covering very heavily um, because it, it fits squarely within our mission.
1: Great, thank you. And so those of you who are just joining us, uh, I'd note that we have a QA and a function here. If you wanna submit questions, we'll try to, our best to get to those as they come in during the discussion and to kick things off, uh, because people are, are probably coming at this with varying levels of knowledge. We thought we'd start with a really high level overview of kind of the story so far. Um, so Kathy, uh, would you like to kind of give us a quick rundown on what exactly are we talking about here? What the hell happened in Ohio?
3: <laughs> a lot, so first let's turn the clock back a decade. Nuclear and coal-powered plants were having trouble competing with natural gas coming online from fracked horizontal wells. At the same time, the cost of renewables was starting to come down. First Energy, American Electric Power, and other utilities asked to hire regulators for subsidies, and after a few years, they got some, but those were temporary and subject to court challenge, so the utilities wanted the law changed. Gerrymandered districts pretty much assured Republicans a majority in the state, but even at that First Energy could not get uh, its nuclear ZEN bill passed. Um, And ZEN was actually an acronym First Energy made up. I'm going to skip over a whole lot now. Fast forward to last summer. Federal authorities brought charges against former Speaker Larry Householder and others, alleging a $60 million conspiracy to pass and defend House Bill 6. The alleged plan was to use dark money, that is money that that couldn't be traced to whoever paid it, to do three things. First, elect householder-friendly folks and get Larry to become Speaker of the House. Second, ramp through House Bill 6. And third, prevent a voter referendum on the law. Most of the money on the alleged scheme came from First Energy and its subsidiaries, but some came from others. House Bill 6 was passed in 2019. It did several things. First, it subsidized First Energy's former nuclear plants to the tune of about a million dollars over, I'm sorry, a billion dollars over six years. Uh, It recession-proofed utilities by letting them peg revenues to 2018 levels. It subsidized two 1950s coal plants. The cost for that's roughly 700 million through 2030. It provided money for a handful of solar plants, but about $20 million the kittens compared to the rest of the bill. And it also gutted Ohio's energy efficiency and renewable energy standards. The subsequent investigation focused a lot on First Energy, although other companies and entities also paid money into the UNHC. As a result, Sam Randazzo, the head of the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio, resigned last fall after First Energy disclosed that it had paid him about $4 million just before he became out of the PUCM Several high-level high First Energy folks were also fired. And then this summer, First Energy made a deal with the federal government where it admitted wrongdoing and agreed to pay $230 million as a penalty. Where we are right now is that the nuclear subsidies have been repealed, the recession proofing has been repealed, but the rest of House Bill 6 is still in place and bills to repeal the rest of it, either in part or in full, have been introduced, but when or whether those will get passed, we don't know.
1: Great, thanks for that. And so those of you are here to get into the weeds, I promise you we are going to get into the weeds uh, as we go. So, um, and there's actually a good question I'll throw right out here from from Rich Weiss here. Uh, Does the average Ohioan know too much, too little, or just enough about the first energy bribery conspiracy? Uh, Related question, does the average Ohio media outlet report too much, too little, or just enough about the first energy conspiracy and why? Who wants to take that?
4: I'll comment on it, but I'm sure others have thoughts too. Um, you know, I think, I think it depends. Sometimes we're in our own echo chambers. I talk to a lot of people that know a lot about it because they know what I do. Um, and so they're always interested in talking about it like all of you that are tuning in today. But I would say, you know, based on the fact that most of these guys got reelected into our legislature that folks don't, um, don't understand really the, the magnitude of what happened here enough um, or they may have voted them out. Uh, So that's kind of the lens I take on it. And I do think, you know, especially the folks on this call uh, with me, I'm lucky to be in the presence of some really great investigative journalists here. Um, There's been lots and lots of coverage of this topic um, and there's been lots of great work done with a plane dealer and the dispatch and um, the Dayton Daily News. So I think there's been some really good coverage of this but I feel like a lot of folks wonder how can I make an impact and does it matter? Or is this just gonna keep happening?
1: Yeah, and that's a uh, we're going to get to that uh, later in the conversation here. So definitely hold that thought. Um, but uh, what what I want to kind of get into now is is part of the problem here is that this is really complicated. I mean, as eloquently as Kathy was able to explain it here. Um, so what specifically is First Energy accused of, and what are some other uh, players involved, and, and and what specifically are they accused of doing? Who wants to jump in on that? Don't make me call on you.
2: <laughs> I can, I mean, uh,
3: to, yeah. I'll, I'll defer to Dave in a minute, but just for starters, First Energy admitted this summer that it used dark money organizations for purposes of effect, affecting public policy through, Two individuals primarily and it's admissions referred to the former Speaker of the House and the former head of the PCM.
1: Yeah, Dave, did you wanna jump in?
2: Yeah, I think if you look at the charging documents from that federal case um, involving First Energy, the prosecutors did use the word bribes So certainly they admitted to that to some extent. And also um, we have seen the Security and Exchange Commission um, subpoena American Electric Power, which also benefited from House Bill 6's coal subsidies and um, funded a similar dark money entity um, that poured some money into supporting Larry Householder's dark money group generation now. And then sort of a third tier is that There's a few coal companies, including Murray Energy and um, the Boyk companies that have popped up, um, not been named, but you can tell just by the way that um, the evidence involving them is described by federal prosecutors in the case. Um, But none of those other three companies, AAP, um, Murray or Boyk have been charged by the Department of Justice itself. So sort of a, we'll see where that goes from there type of thing.
1: And so we're we're at a point now where, um, so householder was expelled from the, the legislature. Um, there are people calling for a PUCO investigation, um, but what is really going on right now? We know there is a lot of litigation happening right now and Lucia, maybe do you wanna kind of walk us through uh, where we're at currently in that area?
5: Sure, so this is one of the sort of stumbling blocks in terms of people being able to follow this is there's just so many moving pieces uh, so many people have sued pretty much everyone um, because there's a lot of harm here, right? There's just, there's obviously a harm to the public in terms of, you know, the criminal things filed, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, the SEC has had an investigation. Obviously, there's been quite a few shareholder lawsuits, um, you know, shareholders have been, to, uh, <laughs> uh, have been wanting to get their money back. Rate ratepayers have been wanting to get their money back. So there's the rate and refund cases. There's the Sixth Circuit Appeal. Um, there's the FES bankruptcy where we were able to get a lot of documents just, you know, to be able to report on in the first place. Um, obviously, uh, attorney general Yost's, uh, um, case, uh, just in, on Monday, uh, Randazzo filed a, uh, a motion to, um, to, fi- to have more space to write even more. So I thought, oh boy, this is going to be fun coming up. And so, you know, but really what it comes down to, um, is, you know, we're, we're looking to see, you know, there's pieces missing here, right? <laughs> Somehow, $60 million uh, disappeared. Where did that go? How, does it, how did it get there? Um, and there's there's been a lot of different issues in terms of, you know, who has jurisdiction over what? So, for example, um, this, this very morning, uh, the PUCO had two uh, big case, two, I'm sorry, had a pre-conference hearing um, where they looked at two uh, big motions in terms of, you know, Um, what they could disclose and what they couldn't disclose. So very, very big, um, I think, um, a copy of the internal investigation. So this has been, um, basically, uh, First Energy and the related companies have been arguing that this should be privileged information, right? Um, But the OCC is saying, wait a minute, you did this internal investigation, you fired (laughs) all these high level people, I need the document that says why you fired them, right? Um, so in this case, uh, that, that copy of the internal investigation, uh, within the next seven days is going to go before, uh, attorney examiner, uh, Gregory price. Um, he's going to look at it and see if it is privileged. Um, and then they're also, um, he did grant, uh, you know, access to the factual documents in terms of, you know, what they concluded in order to, to fire those people.
1: Excellent, and, and we know that this has also gotten the attention of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and the Securities Exchange Commission and other sort of federal entities. And Dave, uh, do you wanna give us a, a roundup of uh, what's happening outside of Ohio
2: um, related to this? Sure, um, so the SEC has subpoenaed both First Energy and AEP in connection with the hospital sick scandal. Um, The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission already had an audit of First Energy going on um, while First House Bill 6 was being debated and then passed. And then you had that whole ballot referendum petition campaign um, that First Energy spent millions of dollars to quash. Um, And they have since escalated that to include a more formal investigation and subpoena-seeking records um, related to HB6 lobbying, essentially. Um, And then in other states like New Jersey and Maryland, the Public Utility Commission and state consumer advocates that um, represent utility, um, ratepayers across those states have called on um, the Public Utility Commission's there to investigate um, any overlap between the Ohio scandal and the first energy utilities in those states, and in particular, whether any money collected from ratepayers there um, was funneled into this massive dark money and bribery scheme. Um, so, I think those are the big ones. And then I would just mention that Pugo is also looking into this in kind of a fragmented way. I think they have four reviews and audits involving HB6 that have started to um, trickle out over the summer and this month. Um, with mixed results there, so I'm sure we'll get into those findings, but we can move on now.
1: Excellent, thank you. Um,
2: so that's where
1: we are, and so we've talked about what's happening. So let's, for the next section, talk about how this happened. How did how on earth <laughs> did we get here? This is it's a it's a an action on behalf of utility that seems uh, particularly brazen. I think it would even make uh, states like Illinois blush. Um, So what are the conditions within uh, the state that enabled this to to basically kind of go undetected up until the FBI started digging in on it? And that's a loaded question, because I know we detected some of this before the FBI. So that's a hint. Whoever wants to dive in?
5: <laughs> well, I think that that's going to be sort of the key question. So, yesterday they just released the 165 page audit. Um, you know, depending on your, your view of that, uh, there was no sort of smoking gun. They never said, oh, there was a major violation, but there's sort of a lot of uh, minor violations. They mentioned, you know, problems, you know, 10 years back. Um, so, I think that, you know, we, we're sort of starting to get an outline of um, you know just policies and procedures that weren't in place. It doesn't seem like there was any uh, one thing, but sort of accumulation of um, uh, many things across several companies over time that that kind of um, added t- to the brazenness.
3: <laughs> and, and I think uh, in that audit, what, what was interesting was even though it said no major violations, the minor violations that it listed were things like having a common, you know, shared services like a common money pot and, you know, reporting issues and consultants and, you know, things that ultimately seem to have facilitated the flow of money and that at least raise a question in my mind of what would be considered a major violation, right? And and then, it's, it's not just what was going on at First Energy, there's also the regulatory system of how commissioners are appointed, and then the legislature, which, you know, has, has been dominated in a certain way. I don't know, Randy, do you want to weigh in on that?
4: Yeah, I was gonna, that's what I was gonna kind of bring in, Kathy. I mean, this, you know, this is something of a perfect storm, I guess, because we've had, you know, we've got captive uh, ratepayers, obviously, with utilities that are, um are doing things kind of behind the scenes. It's a complicated process, which is, you know, why we need the PUCO to really dig in here and make sure that uh, they're holding the utilities accountable, right? The the purpose of our utilities and the purpose of the PUCO um, really is to be, um, you know, making sure we have reliable utility service uh, in the state, and that's what it's supposed to be for. So we really need to be getting back to that baseline level. Um, but again, you know, for the perfect storm, we've got a legislature. Um, That's uh, very fossil fuel friendly right now, Um, you know, which can be seen in lots and lots of things, not just House Bill 6. There's kind of a slew of things that you can look at um, to to see that kind of pattern that we've seen. Um, And then campaign finance rules that have been loosened with Citizens United has really allowed for these dark money groups to kind of blossom and, and cause a lot of problems that we hadn't seen in the past.
1: Uh, I'll turn to another uh, audience question here, Uh, so from from John, the the corruption issues are obviously bad, but do you think these issues obscure the fact that HB 6 was such a terrible energy policy and wouldn't have been passed without dark money?
3: I mean, I think there's been a lot of outcry about House Bill 6 being terrible energy legislation, and... The corruption, uh, or the alleged corruption, came about in large part because it was so bad, it was not otherwise possible. You had conservatives in the legislature previously who were saying, uh, I may be fossil fuel friendly, but I don't want to give this subsidy or that subsidy
1: You know, so I think it's known that there are problems. And yeah, so what else, you know, do, do we have anything to add on the dark money angle? Anyone else want to throw anything out there?
2: I think in the early coverage um, in the media when Larry Householder was first arrested and um, a detailed affidavit from an FBI agent was filed in court publicly, um, people picked up on the fact that um, they actually had like audio recordings of meetings and phone calls involving um, some of the people in, involved in this scandal, and you know even Householder and his crew of political consultants who were charged in the case were kind of always joking about, um, you know, just like how horrible the advertising they were running through these dark money groups was um, and how effective it was proving and beating up essentially their their fellow legislators to the point that they felt like they had to um, accept the bill. And there was also a tell all um, book written by one of the lobbyists who was charged Um and unfortunately committed suicide in the Householder case. Um, But he wrote about essentially um, uh, how the policy itself was not very well uh, loved. And um, it really was because of the dark money um, and the advertising involved and First Energy really driving the train on that, uh, that the bill passed to begin with.
4: Yeah, just if I can add on to that real quick, Ken, I mean, you know, what kind of why I was saying it was a perfect storm is some of what Dave was saying, right? There were multiple attempts to get a bailout for First Energy's nuclear plants uh, in prior general assemblies. So this was not a new concept. It simply suddenly gained, you know, all of the pieces it really needed and all of the different parts to really get rammed through as part of House Bill 6. So, you know, they've been looking for this bailout for a while. It had been um, you know, it hadn't been picked up, frankly, the legislature hadn't been interested in it. But when they got it to this place, um, were able to package together some things that different uh, pieces of the legislature didn't like, uh, coupled with that dark money, um, you know, and, then the, and the alleged bribery, I think that that's kind of where landed us where we are. And, and it's not good policy, right? Uh, there was some comments by the governor at one point, um, after the, the bribery and the indictments came out, um, that, well, it's still good policy. And I think that that's been proven <laughs> to be uh, false. Um, you know, right now we've got all of those pieces repealed. Kathy was talking about, but we've also got uh, energy waste reduction legislation pending at the state um, uh, now, because I think legislators recognize they went too far and there are several bills pending to repeal the OVAC subsidies. And, you know, we hope those move in the fall. I just
2: add quickly too that most of the major components of HB6 were proposed in the legislature before Larry Householder and DeWine were in charge and didn't really fly either because they couldn't get a majority of support or um, because of the previous governor, Kasich Speedo pen. So sort of tells you that there was obviously a pretty big uh, switch, even though utilities obviously had a lot of power in Ohio before then.
3: And I think, I think the switching governors is an important point to note, because John Kasich, for all of his policy positions, um, even though, for example, he signed a bill that froze the clean energy standards for two years, when the legislature wanted to just kind of gut them in 2016, he vetoed that so that they at least came back in a weakened form. Um, DeWine, you know, signed House Bill 6 within hours of its passing, and has pretty much gone along with, I'd say, most of what the fossil fuel groups have wanted, despite using all of the above language.
1: And should we, oh, go ahead, Lucia.
3: I was just saying, I think there's just sort of this
5: perfect storm of, like, you know, Citizens United adding to this, fewer journalists, this is a very uh, detailed (laughs) and, uh, you know, thick subject to take on period. And then we have, uh, you know, people who are willing to take advantage of it. So, you know, dark money especially has been difficult because, you know, each one of these things was funneled through a 501 C4. So if we had been able to, uh, cause you know, everyone who got it, I got a flyer in the mail that said, that I could tell you was from very shady people. But you know, unless we have that layer of transparency, we really can't fight those.
1: And I was gonna go ahead and uh, jump into another question from the audience here, because we were starting to talk about Governor DeWine a little bit. So Peter is asking, with Governor DeWine continuing to stick up for HB6 even after the news of the scandal kept coming out, is there any indication that the governor was either in the know or involved? with householder Randazzo being the first two dominance to fall Dewan seemed like, Dewine, excuse me, seemed like he might be next. We might add to that Dewine was also very quick to appoint Sam De- Randazzo as chair of the POCO. Um, so anyone want to uh, speculate <laughs> on what what happens next with the governor?
4: I think I, I can comment a little bit on this and I'm sure others have thoughts again too, but um, you know, it seems unclear how, you know, how involved anybody was uh, from that level up. Um, you know, Governor DeWine um, did appoint Sam Randazzo very quickly. And and a lot of his comments around that appointment were that, you know, uh, former chair Randazzo had a lot of experience and background in this. And certainly he did. He'd been working in this field for 40 years. It um, wasn't the kind of experience that was uh, helpful for a clean energy future, of course, as we've seen. But, um, you know, I think it remains to be seen who was really involved with that, whether, Whether the governor had any direct uh, understanding of you know kind of what was going to happen after that appointment or whether there were other folks in his office that may have been involved um, uh, instead. And
3: and along those lines there are people close to DeWine who have links to utilities. Um, Dan Tierney who I think is, uh, I may have the title wrong but I think he's like One of his chief legislative policy people uh, had at one point been the head of one of the dark money groups that funneled money to Generation Now. Um, Somebody else had been with AEP in his administration, the head of the nominating committee that recommends people for appointment to the PUCO. Uh, had some background as a first energy lobbyist, I think. So there are these different connections.
1: So we have another question in from David. How can Randazzo take bribes and not be charged with a crime? Anyone wanna answer that one?
2: I don't think we know whether that is the case definitively yet or not. Um seems like the FBI and Department of Justice agents involved in these cases have been pretty upfront um from when the charges against Larry Householder were first announced that the investigations are ongoing and they'll follow where the evidence leads essentially. Um, and in Energy Harbor, the former first energy systems are use bankruptcy case they've avoided um publicly filing some information related to their lobbyist role in the passing of House Bill 6, essentially by telling the bankruptcy judge that, hey, hold off, you know, like we're still involved in an ongoing grand jury investigation. Um, let's let's finish that up first and then we can, you know, resume these issues in this case and he's been okay with doing that. Um, but it sort of tells you that there's still grand juries going on um, and the whole thing wasn't dealt with completely by this deferred prosecution agreement that um, first century Reach, you know, Larry Householder hasn't even gone to trial yet. So we'll see where it goes, essentially.
5: Um, this was also a question that came up um, at the, before the PUCO uh, today, actually. The OCC had um, filed a motion to, uh, basically, you know, the thrust of their argument was, you know, there's a document that says, um, you know, this $4.3 million was for political purposes. And, you know, like, where, do, where are those documents? Um, so, and, you know, First Energy's argument was, you know, we gave you the consulting contract <laughs> already. Um, so the judge ruled that uh, basically um, any factual documents related to that request uh, would be granted and any. Um, Uh, So the the long story short is I agree with uh, (laughs) Mr. Anderson that basically, you know, um, further down the line, um, that's probably going to be um, on the table once they can connect those dots.
1: Yeah, and and some of the questions that are coming in, I do want to acknowledge the reader questions coming in, a lot of them have to do with uh, what's going to happen next, which we will get to later in the conversation, I promise, including sort of what are the the levers that the public has to to get involved. But um, I will jump to another uh, question here uh, from Mike. Why do you think AEP, Dayton Power and Light and Duke Energy have gotten off without a scratch, even though they are getting millions in subsidies out of HB6?
3: I would echo a little bit of what Dave said that we still don't know whether there will be further uh, charges or investigations made. There was money, for example, that went from AEP to a nonprofit group, 501c4. That in turn, some of that went to Generation Now, and there were arguments about how much anybody knew or didn't know. Um, But again, we don't have access to that information. I don't know what investigations, if any, may be going on. Um, AEP has said it did not know anything unlawful was going on. but again, we don't know what else may come in the future.
1: Yeah, part of the issue here is that it seems like we're in, in kind of the middle chapter of all of this. And I, it sounds like a lot of folks are kind of hungry for a quick resolution, but we're really not going to have a quick resolution, are we? Um, and so maybe this would be a good opportunity to kind of shift gears into what happens next and this is a question that sort of has to do with with leverage, and we'll start with. And this is a little bit more background too. But one question we didn't get to is: Are ratepayers paying now for First Energy's political influence?
4: I think you know part of that is what some of those cases at the Public Utilities Commissioner trying to determine. Um, and so, you know, like Lucia was saying, there's a report that just came out yesterday on part of on one one case, but there are four different. Uh, cases moving at the same time, so so we don't know for sure. Um, but it seems seems tough to think that there might not be something in there that was that was ratepayer funded money, given the way utilities are set up. Frankly, I mean it's just the business and the nature of the business. Um, so I think so I think that remains to be seen for sure.
2: I would give a slightly different answer of yes. <laughs> um, the Public Utility Commission of Ohio. Um, audited First Energy, based on some disclosures that the company made during uh, earnings call with investors and uh, earnings report that it filed in February, where they said, um, as part of our internal investigation into like the Larry Householder criminal case, we've uncovered 10 plus years of improper accounting, essentially resulting in um, misuse of repair money. And they didn't really say what specifically. So we know there's something there. And what this audit did was follow up and say, "Um, can you show us what you're talking about? (laughs) Um, And I think, you know, you can, you can be critical of the limits of that audit kind of being driven by the information that First Energy was willing to disclose. But um, it did show that they paid many millions of dollars to uh, a wealthy individual, companies affiliated with a wealthy individual named Tony George in the Cleveland area um, and didn't do a great job of explaining how he's connected to Larry Householder case, but that money was actually included in Ohio rates. um, And presumably First Energy wouldn't have disclosed it since no one was talking about it if it didn't have to do with the scandal somehow. Um, So we'll see where that goes as well. But it did also um, say that they included um, some of the other money that went to Randazzo's um, consulting firms and to these dark money groups and various rates and chargers. And then there's still kind of an outstanding question of whether that money was actually collected from rate payers due to uh, rate caps and different things like that, that Pico has in place. So still kind of TBD on the worst of the worst spending, but uh, pretty clear that we're kind of heading in the direction that um, the auditor recommended millions of dollars in refunds and also that other money not be allowed to be included in future rates, which I think is pretty key because First Energy does have a pretty big rate case coming up in the next few years in Ohio. And that would be an opportunity should the PICO allow it um, for various stakeholders like the Ohio Consumers Council and environmental groups really dig in and say, you know, like, let's see some of the receipts of the spending if it's done right.
3: And I think I would just add one more point that we've been talking about these separate PUCO cases, but in a way it's it's like the old Indian folk tale about blind guys and an elephant where each case looks at just one part of the whole elephant and there is not any big picture of the whole elephant. And that's frustrating both to journalists and I think to the public and to advocates.
4: Yeah, um, I just thought that, that was a good clarification, Dave. I guess I was saying like more uh, because we do know about those already. Um, one other thing, just about the the compliance um, or the the audit that came out yesterday was just that there, they they noted that they couldn't get access to records from uh, the audit period of 2016 through 2020 because the compliance officer. Um, Had been separated from the, from the company, so that's a huge gap um, that I just don't understand how you can just kind of dismiss it. Uh, so that there's a there's a lot that's still being uncovered because this is just not a very full report, uh, and we probably need to see a lot more.
1: Yeah, and so this uh, this maybe leads into a question uh, from Karen, which is it's it's fairly long, but I'll kind of try to to summarize. Which she's asking um, sort of basically one part is how did we come to find out about uh, what was going on? And then the second part is uh, how can other states uh, or regions most effectively rapidly investigate to change unfair legal practices and mandate rapid change to a clean energy system or audits by the PUCO, the place to start? Um, are there federal and not state officials that can do this audit? And this sort of gets at, um, the next section here, which is sort of what are the levers of, of power, um, to, to change and rectify things. So where do we start? We could start with, (laughs) uh, we could start with the state legislature, um, and notably, um, after the scandal broke, um, that it was this this was 2020 right i've forgotten entirely what year it is that um all of the lawmakers who were up for election that year who had voted in favor of hb6 every single one of them was reelected and in fact some of the people who had voted against hb6 lost their races for office what can be done at the legislative level when it again it seems like the public is is pretty disengaged on this issue
4: Well, we're actually uh, right now in the middle of a redistricting effort in Ohio. Um, We are horribly, horribly gerrymandered in this state. Um, And I think a lot of that has given rise to some of this, you know, to go back to our perfect storm discussion. Uh, I think, you know, when we've got such safe districts that lawmakers uh, get reelected after a bribery scandal, um, we've got an issue on our hands. And, uh, you know, Ohioans have demanded fairer maps Um, And so we are going through that process right now. Unfortunately, I will tell you that it's not looking great at the moment. Um, We've had some maps introduced that are actually even worse than the maps we're looking at right now. Um, So I would say that, you know, if you are in Ohio and listening to this, um, get out there and and testify. There are hearings going on right now. Um, Just one last night up in Cleveland. Um, So if if you're interested in helping, make sure that we have fair maps and fair districts and fair representation. It's a really, really critical time in Ohio um, to address those issues.
3: And I would would just add that the situation in Ohio now is not supposed to be business as usual. A couple of years ago, there was a deal made between the legislative leadership on the one hand and groups like the League of Women Voters and Common Cause and other groups on the other hand, where it was supposed to be a compromise and where we were supposed to have everything out in the open. And, you know, from my perspective, as a lawyer, as a journalist, it does not seem as if that promise to bring everything out in the open was being kept. And there's plans to move this forward within the next day or so. So even if one can't testify, one can contact the lawmakers and let them know what they think. And that's purely nonpartisan. just if you think that voters should be picking their leaders.
2: Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Dave. I would add um, First Energy at least says that it has paused um, its contributions to 501C4 political groups, um, like the one that Larry Householder used to get House Bill 6 passed, and then it's also paused um, both collecting money from employees for its political action committee and distributing that money to um, politicians, which is pretty unusual for to ever see a utility do and kind of takes you how seriously they take the threat of these investigations. Um, So it's sort of a moment of pause and I'd imagine reconsideration of some lawmakers in Ohio of how um, closely tied to this utility they wanna be if they're not getting any direct benefit from them. Um, But of course also, raises the question of are they just finding a different way to spend that same money that we can't see which if we're true would be really problematic for their um, deferred prosecution agreement with the Department of um, Justice
1: and earlier we talked a little bit about the the Public Utilities Commission um, and uh, you know we could we should probably, outline if anyone wants to feel this kind of how sam randazzo made his way to chair in the first place and kind of the opaqueness of that that process but also uh maybe hit on what can state regulators do like what are they actually doing what could they do that they're empowered to do that maybe they're they're not um, so we'll let's start with sort of like what you know how the puco is kind of formed in the first place just very briefly if anyone wants to do that run down, I could probably do it, but I'll get it wrong.
4: <laughs> I was going to see if Dave wanted to take it. Cause we're talking about the nominating council. You were mentioning it earlier. So I didn't want to jump in.
2: Um, I could take a crack and then feel free to correct me if I, if I miss anything. Um, but essentially, um, you know, they open the process up when there's a seat that needs to be filled on the PUCO. Um, people can apply for the position and file resumes and such. Um, And then it goes to what's called the PUCO nominating council, which kind of weeds through all those applications and narrows it down to a handful of people. And the interesting thing about that PUCO nominating council is, I think it was originally created um, as part of a compromise that avoided allowing the public to directly elect public utility commissioners in Ohio um, back in the 1980s. And it's sort of become another tool that uh, utilities and their allies use to influence the public utility commission um, by getting their people placed on this commission by people like the governor who appoints a member, um, different industries have a member, and then also um, I believe the Ohio house speaker uh, appoints someone. So. Randazzo was on um, that PUCO nominating council for many years before he threw in his hat um, and ended up becoming the PUCO chairman. And he was appointed there by um, John Husted, who is, of course, now the lieutenant governor of Ohio. And there's some information that um, the Energy and Policy Institute has found in old SEC filings by First Energy that – shows that some firms and groups, Randazzo um, was involved in back then were already getting money from First Energy. So kind of raises another round of questions of just how long did John Husted know about this relationship? And um, he himself is pretty well known for being extremely cozy with First Energy. So sort of illustrates the overall point that people have made over many years of uh, the Spuco nominating council has gone from being part of the uh, solution to becoming part of the problem. And once it leaves their hand, they essentially send some names to um, the governor who makes his appointment from a handful of nominees. And then that has to be approved um, by the legislature. But I think that legislative review is usually a pretty um, weak sauce, you could say.
1: <laughs> and we have, so on that topic too, we have a couple of questions uh, related to the possibility of uh, revoking First Energy's charter. And how would that work? Is that is that a realistic, um, Thing that might happen or, or no?
4: Yeah, I you know this is something that lots of us have, have discussed and debated a little bit about because this is one of the most egregious things that I can imagine a utility could do. Would be buying off you know uh, your legislature essentially as they're accused of um, and, and admitted to as part of the deferred prosecution agreement. Um, so you know this is a real question, but you know the the difficulty of actually removing a charter from uh, a public utility. I mean, it's a huge huge process, right? This is This is a very very difficult thing to do and to have a public takeover of one of our utilities would be a massive process. So um, while while an important consideration and something I think we should be talking about, it's uh, very unlikely to happen I think um, despite uh, the egregious nature of, of the actions that have been taken here.
1: Okay any other thoughts on that? We'll jump into another question here uh where was i from ted uh sb 117 that repeals the hb6 coal subsidy has had two committee here appearances it sponsors are from both parties what are the prospects for sb 117 getting passed this fall in senate and then in the house and we want to put some numbers on that one we'll do some we'll do a pool later do
4: some pool yeah, yeah. <laughs> um well so our sister organization OEC action fund um we are uh strongly in favor of senate bill 117 um, we plan to testify on it and we have the opportunity um, and we certainly think that this has a chance of moving um you know forward and i think that the best time to get it done is is now if this doesn't get passed uh, before the end of the year i'd be surprised if it if it has legs again but you know you're right it is bipartisan this is an important piece um and I think you know Senator Romanchuk's been a real champion for making sure that we have a, a level playing field for um, all of our different um, types of of um, energy generation. So we're, we're hoping that has some movement this fall.
1: Is there anything else happening in the legislature right now that people should be aware of related to this?
4: Yeah, um, so there's there's that uh, OVEC repeal bill. There's also a uh, House Bill 351, which is a similar um, repeal, which is representatives Lanise, uh leading the charge on that one. Um, but then also on the House side, there is a uh, bill uh, energy waste reduction, House Bill 389, um, that is uh, co-sponsored by Representative Bill Seitz and Representative Dave Leveland. Um And this, um, you know, while doesn't reinstate our energy efficiency resource standards that we had before House Bill 6, it does move us forward in the right direction and would be an important step to put residential programs back in place uh, with energy efficiency residential programs. I'm sorry, Um, back in place. So we're interested in that one. And I also think I I alluded to this earlier when I was mentioning this, but, you know, it shows me that our legislators think they've gone too far uh, with a full repeal of our clean energy standards, I think, because it's very clear right now we have no energy waste reduction, energy efficiency programs for residential customers, and this would reinstate those. Um, So that's another uh, bill that we're keeping a close eye on.
3: Right. And, and I would just add, there have been bills for clean, full repeals of House Bill 6 pending since January. But again, they've been stalled. And part of that may be this whole accountability issue in the legislature.
1: Um, And so looking forward, we have another question here. Um, Both uh, Householder and, and Matt Borges have pled not guilty. This question from Mike do you think one or both will be convicted or at least plead to a lesser crime? And that's sort of a delicate question to speculate on, but we could add to that, are there other uh, figures or entities that we haven't discussed yet that we're still kind of waiting um, to to see the other shoe drop on?
3: I mean, we can't predict exactly what's going to happen. a criminal case, what a jury is going to decide if it goes to trial or what somebody may decide to do upon the of his or her counsel. Um, so we really can't make a good prediction there. And again, as Dave mentioned, there's, there are ongoing investigations. So we really can't say who will or won't get charged in the future, we can only say we've been told by the district attorney's office that
2: they're still investigating. Yeah, I would just add, um, there was an interview published a few months ago with a couple of the agents involved in the federal investigation to Larry Householder. And they essentially said, um, you know, keep in mind that I believe it was under the Obama administration. There was a Department of Justice memo that went around saying, Essentially, the best way to hold corporations accountable is to actually um, charge the executives who run it with crimes, um, you know, when that can be proven. And we haven't seen that yet in this case, but I think a lot of the information um, that was included in the deferred prosecution agreement and um, the earlier court filings aimed at Larry Householder certainly point their finger to some key people like. First Energy's former CEO, Charles Jones, who was fired. Um, so can't say for certain whether we'll see more charges aimed at individuals, but they seem to be hinting that that's certainly something that they're keeping in their minds in terms of the federal agents that are investigating the cases.
1: And there's a question here um, that maybe we don't have an answer for, but this is from John and it's directed specifically, uh, David, you. Do you get any sense that other utilities across the nation have been chastened by the first energy example or is the lesson just don't get caught?
3: That's a stumper.
1: (laughs) Richie, do you have any thoughts?
5: This is such a great question, particularly as there's been so little accountability. You know, Larry Householder was finally expelled, but only after he was (laughs) reelected. So, does that mean legislators take it seriously? Does it mean that they don't? Um, You know, but hopefully, this whole you know, I I mean, we had legislators. uh, You know, I did a story on on um, Representative Hagen, who told me that, uh, and this is before anyone got arrested. That uh, people whom she would not name. Had uh, called her up and basically said, "You're going to support HB six, or we're going to fund your competitor." And they did. Um, so hopefully, those calls have uh, stopped. You know, and those are calls that uh, you know journalists can't track. Um, we're related to public records, so um, I really hope that <laughs> this has been a lesson, at least for the people doing it. Um, but but we'll really have to see. Great,
2: right. I think. Oh, in Illinois, um, ComEd, I don't know if I would call it a similar case, but has also been caught up in um, an investigation and reached a similar deferred prosecution agreement um, with federal prosecutors. And certainly there's other states where we know utilities have at least been subpoenaed and investigated um, in corruption related cases and hasn't quite reached the level of charges, but did spur um, you know, investigations by more state-level um, authorities like state AGs or Public Utility commissions. So certainly I think the writing is on the wall and probably the variety of the cases that have popped up in different states just shows you all the different mechanisms that utilities use to influence politics in different ways. This dark money stuff just being one example and some of the other ones more having to do with like traditional lobbyists going overboard.
1: Great. Uh, Well, thanks. Well, this is a story that, as we discussed, is is continuing to unfold and is ongoing. And we here at uh, Energy News Network and also Ion Ohio will be continuing to cover this story. We are both nonprofit newsrooms uh and we welcome your support a lot of folks uh donated to enn through the registration process so i will invite you to also consider making contributions to i uh, ohio as well and also to environmental ohio environmental council um and dave dave doesn't want your money uh <laughs> <so> <laughs> uh dave's organization does not does not take individual donations so uh, feel free to um um uh share the wealth with uh with Ion Ohio and the Ohio Environmental Council. I also neglected to acknowledge the George Gunn Foundation, which uh supports our uh news coverage in Ohio. Uh so we are very grateful for for their ongoing support um and i'm going to kick a question out to the panel here shortly just after a couple more housekeeping things uh thanks again to everyone who submitted questions i apologize we were able to get to all of them again this is like a a very very sprawling and complex thing to wrap your arms around and i appreciate our panelists uh, uh participating today uh you will if you are registered for this event you will receive an email here uh sometime in the next day or so with a uh recording of the event as well as links to uh our ongoing coverage at ENN and also Ion Ohio. Um, we encourage you to continue to stay engaged. Uh, we have newsletters you can subscribe to um, and uh, really excited to see so many people who are involved and curious about this story. So uh, to wrap things up, our, our last question to the panelists is going to be, what is an unanswered question that you have Uh, about this this situation that you would uh, like to see unfold down the road. So we'll start with uh, Lucia.
5: Well, to me, in the past year, I've learned to appreciate what's going into my lungs a lot more. (laughs) So, you know, I'm wondering, how does this affect clean air in Ohio? You know, we have um, put an extreme amount of carbon into our environment already. um, And then Ohio's answer has been to pretty much double down on carbon. So you know, how can we transform our economy um, to being cleaner and to being greener? Um, and, and what is the true cost? Because, you know, $60 million seems like a lot, but, <laughs> uh, you know, actually trying to, when you think about the costs down the road from, um, you know, the, the issues that, that, that are, are caused by uh, dirty energy, you know, I think that that's something that um, I'd like to uh, know more about.
4: I think you're muted, Ken, but I think it's my turn so. <laughs> um, so my unanswered question um, is similar to Lucia's actually, uh, you know, I spend my time trying to figure out how we make progress in the fight against climate change, um, and specifically here in Ohio because you cannot win the fight against climate change if we don't make progress here in Ohio we're too big a polluter right we're sixth in the, the nation or something I think at this point I can't remember our direct number but Um, So that's what I think about, you know, we've got these roadblocks at the legislature, you know, we don't know how this redistricting effort is going to come out, whether we're going to have fairer districts that actually allow us to make some progress or not. Um, But, you know, I'm I I will say I don't want to leave on a sad note. I'm really, really um, happy to see a lot of the progress that's being made at the local level. Um, You know, we look at the state level and we've seen all these different things we've talked about here today. But when you look at the local level, we have uh, city council people, we have mayors across the state of Ohio that are dedicated um, to making a more sustainable future for their communities and for the people that live there. And so I'm excited about uh, that aspect and and that those people are eventually gonna become future leaders of Ohio um, and, and we'll be able to move forward.
1: Great, a year and a half of this and I still don't know how to use Zoom. So uh, Kathy, you're up.
3: Um, I wanna know what the next scheme is, uh, whether it involves nonprofits or for-profit limited liability corporations. And in a related vein, how is government, how is the public supposed to be able to prevent the next scheme if we don't yet have access to a full picture and all the information about what's gone on here?
2: Great. Dave, last word to you. I'm interested to see um, whether there are more charges announced um, by the federal investigators and if more individuals or companies are charged um, in relation to these various bribery schemes are perhaps a totally new thing that they've uncovered um, through their investigations. Great.
1: Thank you. Once again, we are out of time. So thanks again to our panelists uh, today and to all of you for joining us uh, for this webinar. As always, we are going to, uh, uh, as I mentioned, we're going to send out an email with uh, more information and you can continue to follow this story uh, on ENN and also Ion Ohio. So thanks, everybody, and have a great rest of your week.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the audio recording of our webinar. You can stay up to date on Fresh Energy's work at fresh-energy.org or follow us on social media. You can also subscribe to the Energy News Network's original reporting and energy news aggregation listserv. Their reporting and listservs are conveniently broken up by region featuring the Midwest, Southeast, Northeast, and Western U.S. Visit energynews.us to sign up. You can also support Fresh Energy's work by making a donation today or by joining us for our 2021 Virtual Benefit Breakfast coming up on October 14th. Visit our website at fresh-energy.org slash benefit breakfast, all one word. When you register for our breakfast, did you know that you can join a staff person's virtual table for the morning? Both Ken Paulman, who you heard on the webinar today, and myself are hosting a table, so just choose one of our names from the drop-down if you're looking for someone to virtually sit with. Our names will be at the bottom of the registration form. I want to give a thank you and a shout-out to some of our Benefit Breakfast sponsors. Thank you to our title sponsor, Parable Wealth Partners, and to our innovation and technology sponsors, Mortensen and RAR. And thank you also to Atomic Data, Evergreen Energy, District Energy St. Paul, Impact Power Solutions, Apex Clean Energy, Climate Generation, the Conley Family Foundation, Design45, Minneapolis Foundation, Chuck and Candace Nadler, Old National Bank, and Sunrise Banks. Thank you for listening.